We read God's word this evening in the third epistle of John. The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Thus far we read the word of God. I call your attention this afternoon to verses 3 and 4 of this epistle. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved saints in Jesus Christ, what role does truth play in your life? I'm not asking if you know truth. I presume you do. I'm asking, how are you a different person because you know truth than if you did not know truth? Are you a different person if you say truth for me is just intellectual, I know things now that I didn't used to know, that's all, then that's not a Christian. Has truth changed you? Do you walk in truth as Gaius did? Are you a fellow helper to truth as Gaius was? Verse 8. 
Does truth give a good report of you as it does of Diotrephes? Verse 12, rather Demetrius, verse 12. Or on the other hand, do you oppose truth as did that Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them? The question I ask is what effect, what difference does truth make in your life? How is your life formed by it? And the third epistle to John drives the question home. It speaks of three men in the church, but not just generally three men in the church. Three men in the church in relation to truth. Two who set a positive example, Gaius and Demetrius. One who sets a negative example, Diotrephes. Which one are we like? One of the men is Gaius, and to him the epistle is written. We know little about this Gaius. We don't know in what city he is currently. We don't know at what time, although we know it's late in the first century, that John writes to him, but we can't be any more specific. We don't know his relationship to Diotrephes, although there is one, an antithetical one. The one, apparently, Diotrephes has no time for Gaius, because he has no time for the people whom Gaius loves and hosts, the traveling missionaries who go forth for his namesake, according to verse 7. But we know little about Gaius. We do know these things. Number one, he was a child of John, and that would mean a spiritual child. For after John says that Gaius walks in truth, he says he has no greater joy than to hear that his children walk in truth suggesting that Gaius himself either was brought to the faith by John or if already had been brought to the faith, was significantly developed and strengthened in his faith through the ministry of the Apostle John. Secondly, we know that John loves Gaius deeply. The well-beloved Gaius, verse 1, beloved, he addresses him again in verses 2 and 5 and 11. This isn't just a term used to convey some general feeling of graciousness toward, but there's a deep relationship between the two. And in the third place, we know that Gaius sets the example you and I are to follow. We don't know if Gaius and Atrophies are in the same church, but I'm going to presume uh, without spelling out my reasons why that they are. That there are two men in this church who really stand out. The one is prominent and wants to be preeminent and wants to control and wants to determine how things go in the church. The, the words that are said about Diotrephes explain that to be true of him. And the other, Gaius, is a godly man who Diotrephes is speaking evil of also, and so people who want to be on Diotrephes' side, because apparently the man knows what he's all about and knows how a church ought to be run, so they're on his side and not Gaius's, whereas Gaius is the godly man of the two. It may very well be that he's a bit discouraged. He's not seeking a following. He's not counting numbers. But if he's walking in truth, why is he not more appreciated, not for his sake, 
for truth's sake. And John writes to him and says, don't worry. You can't control how it goes in the church. You can't control what men vie for preeminence. You can control whether you continue walking in truth. Do that, Gaius. And so the question with which I began, how has truth formed your life? isn't just the main point of the epistle, but especially also of our text. Are you walking in truth? Even if there be prominent men in society or in the church who oppose truth. With that in mind, I call your attention to the text under the theme Gaius, walking in truth. Notice first, Gaius' godly walk. Second, the brethren's testimony. And third, John's great joy. There are two concepts in the text that take some time for us to look at in detail. Not as a dissertation, not as a lecture, but they're so foundational to the text and they're so unique and distinct to the Christian life that we want to know what do these words mean and the first is the main word that we have to deal with right off the bat, truth. What is truth? We're walking in truth. What is it? In the first place, we have to understand that truth is that which God reveals. And that means that truth is something objective. You look somewhere, you look to the word of God, you look to Jesus Christ as the revelation of God, and you say, here is truth. That means, too, that truth will not change. And so I'm setting the stage to oppose the idea of men who would have preeminence in the church, that truth is something sort of slippery. It, it, it changes form as it needs to to suit their purpose. And I'm also doing battle with the idea that's so common in our society today, that truth is just your opinion. When the text says that Gaius walked in truth, it doesn't mean he was walking according to his idea of what was right. It means far more than that. If one man says, I'm walking in truth, I'm walking according to my idea of what's right, and another man says, well, I'm walking in truth. I'm walking according to my idea of what's right. I, you're walking in truth, you think there's a God. I walk in truth, I think there isn't a God. No, truth is objective, it is unchanging, it is not my opinion, it is that which God reveals. When I ask you if you're walking in truth, the question is, do the scriptures form your life? Secondly, truth has a content. And we don't need to take the time tonight to spell out all the content of truth. We just confessed it in a nutshell when we confessed the Apostles' Creed and the doctrines embodied in it. But very clearly, truth centers in one God, one only sovereign God, a God of love, of grace, of mercy, or of justice too, but not the sort of justice that ignores grace and love and mercy. We have a glorious God who reveals himself in Scripture. But added to that, 
This God made himself known in his only begotten Son, whom he sent down from heaven into our flesh, Jesus Christ. That's the heart of truth. And if you were to have read 1st and 2nd John in addition to 3rd John, you would see that that point, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is at the very heart of what John means when he speaks of truth. What has been attacked and denied in John's day is not that there was a man named Jesus, nor that in some sense he is a Christ or Savior, nor that he is in some sense God. But what was denied in John's day was that that Christ became flesh, truly human. The whole first chapter of John's first epistle defends the true humanity of Jesus Christ. In 2 John 7, John says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And even though he doesn't refer to it explicitly now in the third epistle, when he says truth, he means, are you living your life, walking in truth, living your life in a way that reflects the sovereign control of God over you and the fact that Jesus Christ came into the flesh for you. And you and I are reminded of the necessity of confessing that Jesus is God in the flesh. What does it matter? What if you say, well, Jesus was a man. He wasn't necessarily God in the flesh. What if you take the modern uh, error? Or what if you say, well, what does it matter? We believe he's God. So what if he didn't come in the flesh? Here's what it matters. You and I are sinners. We've fallen. We no longer in ourselves have a relationship, a friendship with God. He is not our Savior apart from the fact that he sent Jesus Christ to the death of the cross. How could Jesus die, die on the cross? How could he truly, God, die on a cross? He must be human. And so he who is truly God becomes truly human to take our sins upon himself. That's what it matters. Throw truth as God reveals it in the scripture away and you no longer have salvation from sin. So that, secondly, as regards truth's content. Thirdly, let's see that truth is always antithetical. Just to say there's something that cannot exist where truth is, but something that will always fight against truth, and truth will always fight against it, and that's called the lie. Elsewhere, John calls it light and darkness. To walk in truth and to walk in light are not significantly different ideas. To walk in darkness and to walk in the lie are the same idea. Truth is antithetical. Again, truth, that which God reveals in his word, has all kinds of things that deny it. And those all kinds of things, as you and I experience them today, are the world's notions. The world's notions of God, the world's notions of Christ, the world's notions of how to live. And the world is very adept at spreading and setting forth its notions, its theories, and its philosophies. In John's day, 
those who were denying that God, that Jesus was God come in the flesh, were Gnostics. That's the term used to refer to that heresy. But these Gnostics took pagan ideas and tried to put a Christian veneer to them and say, well, my idea is as Christian as your idea. And John says, no, that's a lie. And the lie and truth are opposing each other. Truth is antithetical. And what is driven home again is that you cannot say that you will walk in truth this way with these beliefs and somebody else is walking that way with those beliefs and maybe they're walking in truth as well. No, truth comes out of the scriptures. And you know when one is walking in truth. And you know when one isn't. And not just you know when someone else, you know when you are walking in truth. And we know when we are not. And then the fourth thing to say about truth is that from the viewpoint of our text, truth is a sphere in which one lives. Thou walkest in the truth. Well, that's something I can think of walking according to truth. That truth is the standard by which I live, and, and that is true of us. But the text states it even broader. You walk in truth. Either you are in this great sphere, area, spiritual area called truth, and in that truth you keep walking as you progress in your pilgrimage journey, or you are outside that sphere. When you are in truth, which is to say you are in the light, you live in the light of the countenance of God and the word of God shed on your pathway. When you're living and walking in truth, you're living as though Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You answer to him every day. You go to him to seek his will for you in your life today. And the life of the Christian is as antithetical as truth itself. You're either walking in the sphere or you're not. Four things in our text about truth. Now, if I preach in a future date on another verse or verses in 3 John, several of those points I'll briefly remind you of. But there's even more about truth that the epistle brings out in other verses that I'm not touching on right now. But this one was fundamental. Truth is the objective revelation of God to his people about who he is and his saving work in Jesus Christ. In that sphere, Gaius was walking. That is to say, he understood the Old Testament, because he didn't have the entire New Testament yet, but he understood also the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ, and his actions, and his words, and his thoughts, and his motives and purposes were all formed in relation to truth. I'm not denying that he still had the old man of sin in there were times when he would have to acknowledge that he too had sinned, had not lived according to truth, as was his calling. I'm not denying that he needed every day to look at the blood of Jesus Christ and say, 
Good, I see it was shed for me today again because I need that blood today again. I've sinned, and even in my best works, sin cleaves to them. I'm not denying that. I'm saying nonetheless that out of gratitude to God for his saving mercies to Gaius, Gaius lived in truth. He hated the world's philosophies and lies and rejected them. Scripture was his God. Now, when you live that way, in your thoughts and words and deeds, then that suggests that truth is in your heart. And so, John speaks in the text not only of Gaius walking in truth, but of the truth that is in thee. Truth wasn't just something in his head. And if truth is just something that you and I have in our head, we're not going to walk in truth aright. Truth is something we have in our heart, which is to say we love it. Now there's a very concrete way in which Gaius was walking in truth. And verses 5 through 8 will bring that out. Again, someday the Lord willing, that's another sermon text for me as I'm in your presence. But I'll just summarize it a moment. There were men who were going forth preaching the gospel. For his name's sake, these went forth, verse 7 says. They were preaching the gospel, itinerant ministers, missionaries we would call them. And because they were preaching the gospel, they would not take the collections or the food or the support of those to whom they went. We also ask our missionaries not to gain, even take so much as a little from those to whom they preach the gospel. We would have those who hear the gospel for the first time be free of charge, and so we support the missionaries. Well, Gaius did that too. Gaius received these missionaries into his house. He gave them what lodging, what food, what clothing they needed. When they were ready to depart, they left his house, Gaius was walking in truth. He loved the truth, and so did he love it, that he wanted others to know it. This explains then another phrase that John used at the end of verse 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. I hope with this letter that I find you healthy, even as thy soul prospereth. And that's an interesting word, Greek word translated prosperous, because it also has embedded in it the idea of a journey and the idea that one is making adequate progress in one's journey. In his journey through the wilderness of this life to heaven, Gaius' soul prospered. It made good progress. If you have to go to Chicago tomorrow and you get on I-196, and head toward Benton Harbor, and before you get to Holland, you're on the side of the road with a flat tire. And after that flat tire gets fixed, you resume your way, and before you're getting to Benton Harbor, you're at the side of the road with another car problem. You're not making good progress. If you and I, in our journey toward heaven, are beset now by this lie, and beset now again by that sin, our soul, as it were, keeps getting pulled off on the side of the road 
and stops, and it doesn't make progress. That was not true of Gaius. He was clocking in 70 miles an hour on his way to Chicago, as it were, or more to the point of the text, in his journey toward heaven, he kept his focus, and he was making good progress. And this is how he demonstrated it. He loved truth, and loving truth, he loved brothers who brought the truth. And so, I earlier asked the question, are you walking in truth? And now I ask, and is your soul prospering? What the world has to offer poisons the soul. It's not going to prosper with what the world has to offer. But as you love truth and walk in truth, do you support those who preach truth? Do you rejoice with a brother or a sister? It might be one you know at work. Not necessarily the members of the congregation, although these here too. But do you rejoice with any brother or sister who is also walking in truth and you walk side by side with them? Build them up, encourage them. That's walking in truth. To close out the first point, we have to answer the question, how do you explain that a soul prospers and that a person walks in truth? That Gaius does, or that you and I do. And there's a twofold answer to that. The first certainly is the grace of God. Because Gaius was, and you and I are, by nature, dead in sin and trespasses. We were fashioned in Adam in truth. Adam knew God and loved God, but all it took was one sin. Because that one sin was in principle, Adam saying, I don't want always to love God. I want to find out what the alternatives are to loving and serving God. And when he found out, he found out in an absolute sense. He became depraved, dead in sins and trespasses, as are you and I. We're not in the sphere of truth of our own accord. It isn't our knowledge of truth that puts us in the sphere. It is the grace of God, again in Jesus Christ, whom he sent down in our flesh, whereby he says, you were on the pathway to hell, but now I'm going to transform you. It isn't just a matter outwardly of saying, you're on the wrong road, turn around, you've got to go this way. But it's a matter of God internally transforming us. So that not only did Jesus Christ die on the cross to take our sin away, atone, bear the wrath of God for sin, earning for us the right to go to heaven, but he now gives us a new understanding and he renews our will and he gives us to say, heaven, I live for heaven. That's what I want. And truth and my Lord Jesus Christ, that's what I want to live for. Grace, I mean irresistible, sovereign, inworked, transforming grace. That explains how somebody's soul prospers and one walks in truth. The second explanation is also grace, but it's an effect of grace and a gracious effect of grace. I referred earlier to that phrase in the text, the truth that is in thee. There actually is not in the Greek language a word in. Literally, your truth. Only 
what that means. There could be a number of ways to explain that, your truth. And the King James under, translators understand it to mean truth that God has worked in you, which is true. No doubt about that. I don't differ with the explanation or the, in the translation, but it can mean something more too. Truth that God has worked in you, and therefore truth which you have received and made your own. I don't mean that we work with God, that he does his part and then we do our part. I mean very simply that when God works truth in us, the child of God says, that's my truth, not mine in distinction from yours, not my opinion instead of yours, but it's truth and God has made it so a part of me and be so a part of it that I will confess it. I love it. I will die for it if need be. And that also enables Gaius and you and me to walk in truth. You will not walk in truth if you do not love truth and make it yours. That's Gaius' godly walk. But now John is not only speaking of Gaius' godly walk, but of some brothers who testify of that godly walk. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in truth. These brethren, again, are apparently these traveling missionaries who have left Gaius and have come now to John. And when they come to John, they give a report of all that they've done. They've been many places. They've seen many things. They've talked to many people. Among them, all the stories that they bring out, is the story about Gaius and his love for truth and his love for the brethren. Why do they report that? Does John specifically ask? Or is this just part of their highlights of their journey? We're not told. What matters is the content of what they reported. Gaius, John, we want you to know this. Gaius walks in truth. And there are some practical points here that we ought to dwell on a moment. It's always a fact that a brother or a sister A speaks to a brother or a sister B about a brother or a sister C. That happens. Sometimes it shouldn't happen. And sometimes we should catch ourselves before we do it. But it happens. And that's what's happening here. Brothers A, the traveling missionaries, are speaking to brother B, John, about brother C, Gaius. But so often what happens when A speaks to B about C, is that we say things about C that we shouldn't. That's not walking in truth. Oh, but it's true. No, yeah, uh, factual truth maybe, but not truth. The way truth was explained and the way John means truth in the text. For when I speak about person C and walk in truth at the same time, I speak about the grace of God as it comes out in the life 
conduct and speech of person C. That's what the brothers are doing. It's a beautiful thing for A to tell B about C when what we say about C is he walks in truth and truth is in him. This is how God has used him and her in my life. This is how he or she shows that he's such a precious brother or sister in Christ. So now I'm going to ask, is that what you say about C when you speak to B? And if you can't say that to C when speaking to B, don't speak. It's a matter of the ninth commandment, of building up the reputation of the brother. But the reputation of the brother isn't just founded on his own outward conduct. It's a matter in the minds of fellow believers of how has God's truth formed his life and made him a precious member of the body of Jesus Christ. Well, that's number one as far as practical implications. There's a second one. Now, A spoke to B about C, and B, John, says to C, Gaius, you know what A said? So the conversation takes another step. And things can get dicey there too. And I say something to B about C and I shouldn't have. And then B decides he'll tell C what I said. Then unity in the church and brotherly communion is further interrupted. And what does John do when he says, I'm going to tell C what A said. He says to C, this is what A said. Isn't that wonderful that they saw your godliness and the work of God's grace in you? And that's what they talked about. And then I want to underscore that that was God's work of grace in them, that that's what they talked about too. So the circle, as it keeps going around, is building one another up, putting each other in a good and godly light. And all of this, John does to build Gaius up. We ought not be so quick to tell C what A said. Even sometimes if what A said was good and true and didn't cut down, we might say there's no need for me to tell the other brother. It could puff him up. He might not receive it right. But Gaius, walking in truth, is being opposed by Diotrephes. And he needs encouragement. Now that's a time we'll tell C what A said. You're down and discouraged. First of all, let me tell you about this A, what A said about you. This A being Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, brother or sister who's discouraged. You want to know what Christ said about you? He loved you so much, he died for you. And you want to know what another brother or sister in the church said? They saw this gift, this way in which you showed yourself to be a godly believer and they appreciated it. Let's talk to each other that way. These are some of the practical applications that come out of the text as we speak of the brother's testimony. But ultimately, the goal of what they said 
was not to slap Gaius on the back, but to praise God. And that's always the goal of the communion of saints and the things we say about one another, to praise and glorify our covenant God. This drives home then, again, I'll just say it briefly, these points. Truth was not only that in which Gaius walked, but it was that in which these brothers walked also. That first. Secondly, truth wasn't just the brothers' opinion of Gaius. It was how they saw God's grace revealed in him. And that's where we make a mistake sometimes. We think that our opinion now about, our, about a person is true. That the person's a crab sometimes. So we think it's true to say that about the person. No, that's our opinion. Or that's a moment we saw the brother or the sister that wasn't his or her best. Instead of going around telling everyone that's what he's like, why don't we go to him or her and say, something's bothering you, can I help? And then thirdly, the point driven home is this. When you hear what A said to B about you, or when you are B hearing what A says about C, and it focuses on the truth and grace of God, you rejoice. And that's what John did. The news that these brothers bring about Gaius brings joy to John, and he emphasizes the point, and in two ways, in verse 4, he advances this point. The first again, verse 3 is about Gaius, verse 4 is about all his children. Verse 4 is a general principle which has been concretely demonstrated, verse 3, in Gaius. And then in addition, there's development here, because in verse 3, John says, I rejoiced greatly. I was very happy. Now, there could be ten things that make him very happy, and this was one of them. But no, John says, that's not what I mean. I not only rejoiced greatly, but I have no greater joy. This is the greatest joy. And that brings me to the second Concept. I said there were two of them. One is truth. The other is joy. And we won't spend as much time on joy, but what is Christian joy? Christian joy is the activity of the regenerated child of God. It's really his heart activity whereby he delights in the Lord. And in all that the Lord is doing in saving his church. And you can go to Philippians and see some demonstration of that. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Christian joy always centers in the work of the Lord. As I spell that out, in the first place let's focus again on the fact that it has as its object, as its reason for joy... What the Lord is doing. And for that reason, I can have true Christian joy even when I have earthly disappointments and griefs and sorrows. 
And we do, don't we? We have our earthly disappointments and griefs and sorrows, but the problem is if we weren't Christians, if we were, if we were not walking in truth, then those griefs and disappointments and sorrows would almost destroy us. They'd eat us up. They'd, it was all we lived for was to have this reputation or that job. It would make my day so happy today to have this for supper or have that sort of an activity, go to that ball game. And if you're not a Christian and you don't have true Christian joy and you don't get what you want, then life is shattered. But true Christian joy, though it weeps, it's disappointed yet regarding earthly circumstances, but it says, no matter, my Lord is still seated at God's right hand and he's still saving his church. He's using, using even this for my advantage. True Christian joy, not how I feel, but what the Lord is doing in saving his church. Secondly, true Christian joy is not only what the Lord does for me, but it looks at others. I rejoice at the circumstances, the gracious circumstances of others. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, others, and thou walkest in truth. Joy, true Christian joy, is not self-centered. It isn't self-focused. It doesn't look at me. Well, I might be having a trial that I'm being led through. It might be a grievous one, and there might be tears, which are not wrong in and of themselves to shed, so long as they are not tears of self-pity. But in my tears, I hear of the good news of the work of God's grace and providence in the lives of a brother or sister in Christ. And I say, in my tears, I'm happy. That's what the child of God does when he brings a loved one to the grave, a loved one who died in the Lord. There's tears. There's sorrow. And yet, why am I bringing my loved one who died in the Lord to the grave? Because the Lord has just worked in the heart of my loved one. That great aspect of salvation for which I am still waiting. He's delivered him or her from sin. Taken him or her to heaven. And I cry and I'm rejoicing. The bond is broken and there's hurt. But he's better. She's delivered. True Christian joy is about what the Lord is doing. It includes what the Lord is doing in others. And thirdly, it does also observe how the Lord has used me to that end. No, not because all has to come back to me. This too is grace. This too is amazing. You and I sinners, and the Lord would use us in some way to build up the church, serve the church for the well-being of the church. This is amazing. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And implied in that phrase, my children is, I taught them. I taught them. I sometimes warned him. I had to admonish him. At times I had to rebuke him. There were times he was doing things wrong and I had to tell him not to. But I did that. I did that in the service of God's grace. And this makes me happy. I see that in the grand scheme of the saving work of Jehovah, in his work of saving a whole church, 
He's even used means, weak and sinful means that I am. That's joy. But you know what encourages us and builds us up in that joy and brings that joy out above everything else? It's the ministry of the gospel of grace. It is of missionaries who testified of the gospel and came back with a report of the grace of God in Gaius that is the occasion for John to say, I have no greater joy. And now, in application of this point, the question that has to confront us is, has any joy replaced this as your greatest joy? Joy in knowing what our Lord and Savior is doing in saving an entire church, not just me, but a church. Joy in knowing that my children, maybe the parent is saying this now, maybe the pastor and the elders, my children whom I've taught are walking in truth. Has anything replaced that as your greatest joy? When our children are walking in truth, it might be nothing will, but the rubber hits the road when the children then don't walk in truth. And don't take as an implication of the text that if your children walk in truth, your joy is gone. There's grief. I, I, I'm not minimizing that. There is grief. The Lord is still working in the saving of you and of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and of your elect believing children. But the grief, I know it, I get it. The grief drives you to prayer, doesn't it? Prayer in tears. I do rejoice, Lord, in what thou art doing, but now look at my child who wanders and turn him, turn her. It isn't that I lack joy, but in addition to my true joy, there's this real grief. Well, at that point, sometimes there's a danger that we find some other joy to replace our joy. We look at our grief and we say, I can't live this way, can't live with this grief, so I'm going to look for some other joy. And then we turn to earthly things, earthly joys, which in the end don't satisfy. That's our Tendency, that's the danger against which we have to guard. Has any other earthly joy replaced this as your greatest joy? If you don't have children, if all, or if all of your children have gone astray, griefs, real griefs, can you still say, but yet I have, True joy. In conclusion, what John says, he says by inspiration. And that brings us to a whole nother level of meaning of the text. This isn't just a human now, it is, but not that we're not going to end there. Not just a human speaking of his joy about the work of God's grace in humans, 
listen to your Lord and Savior right here. I rejoice greatly. Members of the congregation of First Protestant Reformed Church, I rejoice greatly, says your Lord and Savior. When the brethren came and testified, and then I didn't even need their testimony, I could see it with my own eyes, of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That joy is the joy of our God and our Lord and Savior. He grieved when Adam sinned. He grieves when you and I sin. I mean particularly now when we turn aside to deliberate, willful sins. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, which one would do by a life of disobedience or unbelief. God grieves. What makes God the happiest? His children walking in truth. And now, because he's sovereign, he doesn't come to us and say, I'm so unhappy with how you're living. And then only you can change it. Only you can make me happy. But he comes to us and says, I'm unhappy with you. I'm going to make me happy with you. I am going to take you and put the truth in you and make you walk in truth. And I will rejoice in the end, says Jehovah, at what I have done in you. And when you hear that that's the word of your Lord and Savior and of the sovereign God, is that not incentive to walk in truth? What thankfulness we have, it should well up within us that we who were in the darkness and in the lie have been put on the pathway of truth and in the sphere of truth and given the power of Jesus Christ himself to walk in truth. Let us do it with renewed resolve in this coming week. Let us do it. And those who know that this journey in which our soul makes progress ends in heaven and keep our eyes fastened on heaven, heaven, a place where there will be only truth and only light, darkness and the lie destroyed, heaven, a place where we will walk in truth to all eternity perfectly and world without end. And may our life now on earth be fashioned according to that which it will be in that day. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we ask thy blessing on us this evening and pray that thy word find ready entrance into our hearts and lives. That we have been built up in faith, strengthened in hope and in godliness but above all, seeing the glory of the grace that thou dost show us in Jesus Christ, work in us a true, deep, heartfelt Christian joy. Even as thou dost rejoice in thy labors, so may we rejoice by grace, not only as shown in our lives, but also the lives of others. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.